I am so excited this evening to start uh, the book of Esther. Esther is one of my very favorite books in the Bible, Um, and here's why. Esther takes the the wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, uh, and it, it brings it to life. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Dave Lomas taught on the book of Ecclesiastes, and um, Ecclesiastes is this, this book that tells us what life is like when you're chasing after all of the trappings of this world, right? Love and sex and money and power and uh, pleasure and all of these different things, and at the end of it, it's hevel, Hevel, everything is hevel. It's, it, it's meaningless. It's, it's worthless is what the author of Ecclesiastes says. And the thing you have to love about Ecclesiastes is it's an honest book. It's someone who's run this road and gives you this testimony at the end of it of what they got for their journey. Um, but there's this moment of enlightenment in Ecclesiastes in, in chapter 3 where the author says, he, God, has set everything uh, beautiful in its time. He said eternity in the hearts of men. And then with emphasis added here, here's this idea. Yet they, humanity, cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So we run this course, we go through um, our lives, we chase these things, and we don't know, we don't really know what the Lord is up to from beginning to end. Hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. And we can relate to this. We eat, we drink, we love, we, we go, get in relationships, we do all these things, hoping that we're on the right track, and, but we don't really know what the Lord is up to in all of it. Sometimes we get little glimpses, but we don't know from beginning to end what God has been doing. Now, Ecclesiastes is a philosophy book. It's a wisdom book, uh, a book of observations and statements, a book of facts, And I imagine that you type A, analytical type people love that stuff, love Proverbs and love Ecclesiastes. God bless you, that's not me. Um, So I, I think, what if the book of Ecclesiastes, like this ambiguity in life, all of these crazy things going on around us, and we don't know what God is up to, what if, what if that could be a story? What if there was a narrative that actually brought that to life? And that's what the book of Esther is. Uh, it is this, this story of all of these crazy circumstances, all of these moral failures, uh, all of this chaos going on, all of this tragedy that, that doesn't seem to have resolution uh, until the end. And you don't really know where, where God is, what he's doing through this story. Um, that's what makes stories so great. So God bless wisdom literature. God bless the facts and analytics. Not my thing. I'm a story guy. And you guys know this about me. I like to tell stories. Uh, I tell you guys stories about my life and my kids and my, my family and everything. Uh, I love to read stories. I'll choose nonfiction before fiction nine times out of ten. Uh, I love to watch movies. Getting lost in a story is one of my favorite things to do. Recently, my family drove from, uh, I, I did a wedding in Montana 
And we had this great idea, let's make a road trip out of it and drive across the U.S., go almost halfway, or almost all the way across. Uh, we went to Wisconsin. I guess that's not all the way across. It's like the Midwest. Felt all the way across, though. So threw our kids, our three kids, in uh, a Chevy, uh, uh, yeah, Chevy Traverse, and we, we went for it. And uh, while we're on this trip, my wife and I listened to a book on tape. Uh, it was uh, All the Light You Cannot See. Anybody read that book? Oh. So good. If you like stories, get that book. Um, so we listen to the story, and you just get lost in the story. My wife's crying. Like, we're in the middle of, like, South Dakota. My wife's crying, you know, in her seat, just listening. You get lost, and you understand experientially wisdom and failure and heartache and love and all these. It's, it's powerful. Stories are powerful. I think this uh, comes from even a deep place in my heart as a kid. My favorite elementary school teacher was Mr. Reagan. And uh, his reward to us, if we like, were really good, if we got enough points like on the chart that day or we got the room cleaned up or whatever, is at the end of the day, he would tell us a story. And they were good enough that we actually did all the stuff, and like we wanted to hear the story. And I remember there was this one story that he told. Um, this is I don't know why I remember this one, but there's this one story he told uh, of, of he and his brother. They grew up in Los Angeles, and they were in their backyard. It was summertime, and it was extremely hot. And they were just baking out there. And they had the little kiddie pool. And they just kind of like splash each other and try to keep, uh, keep cool. It was so hot out. Uh, in the day, and, and there's no, no, no place to go to hide from the sun. And, uh, and their mom had bought this giant bobble, uh, uh, bottle of super soaker bubbles. That was it. There's this super soaker bubbles. And they took the entire container and poured it into their kiddie pool, and they began to make bubbles. And, and they, they tried to make bigger bubbles and bigger bubbles. And finally, Mr. Reagan's brother made a bubble so big that he actually fit inside of it. And then as he was inside of this bubble, this warm breeze blew by and it lifted him off the ground. And he went up and he could see, he got up so high he could see all of his neighborhood. And he looked down, he could see his neighborhood. And then he went and the breeze kept blowing. He went up and he was looking down on the winding freeways of Los Angeles. And he could see everything and, and began to get afraid and he cried out, like, please bring me down from this bubble. If it pops, I'm going to die. And the bubble slowly came down, and it, it rested on center field of Dodger Stadium. <laughs> and it wasn't until the freeway part that I looked at my buddy Jeff. I'm like, can he really do that? Like, can bubbles do that? Or do they make those kind of bubbles? This is your teacher. Like, you're supposed to believe everything they say. So for, from the very formative stages of me, I love stories. I get lost in stories. My kids are, are this way. So when, when I read Ecclesiastes, good stuff, good information, not my genre. But Esther, Esther takes all of these things of Ecclesiastes and they come to life in people and in circumstances that we can understand. So we're going to spend the next four weeks in the book of Esther, and I want us to savor it. I want us to chew on it. Uh, Eugene Peterson says that a good story is like a meal that you sit down to. And you savor every bite and every flavor of what you're consuming. And it becomes a part of you. 
And I hope, maybe that's setting the bar a little high, but I hope for the next four weeks we can do that in this amazing story uh, of Esther. It's such a rich story. Um, I'm going to give you five reasons that Esther is an amazing story, okay? Uh, And then a few challenges that we're going to have with the book. First amazing thing about Esther is that it is part of the traditional history of the Jewish people, deeply embedded in the Jewish history, uh, a tradition of the Jewish people, which is our, where our Christian heritage comes from, so we should care about this. Uh, at a council of rabbis, uh, they said that there were six books in the Old Testament. All of the Hebrew scriptures were important, but there were six books that we would read into eternity, Right? So what they would say uh, at the day of resurrection, these six books would uh, remain and we'd keep reading them. That was the Torah, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah, and the book of Esther. That it would go on into eternity and the Jewish people would be reading these stories and reading um, this wisdom literature. Um, and a festival, there's a festival called the Festival of Purim that the Jewish people still celebrate today, 2,500 years after this story was written. They still celebrate it, and they read the story of Esther in the morning and at night, still, every year. So this is important to our heritage. We should care about this. Secondly, second amazing thing about this book, it's one of the few books in the Bible that give us a a realistic glimpse of what day-to-day life was like for the Jewish people living in exile. Remember that uh, God had made a nation uh, called Israel, his, pe- his chosen people, and he had intended for them to be a different type of nation, and they failed miserably. Uh, they turned their back on God, and, and he sends armies to destroy Jerusalem and scatter his people from the land he had given them, and they are taken, dragged into exile into these foreign nations. And we don't have many books or many stories about what that time was like. We read the prophets, right? Jeremiah and Isaiah, and they're lamenting and they're crying out about uh, what God is going to do, how he's going to rectify it, the feelings that they were feeling. But real stories of what's happening, there's not a whole lot of stories uh, in uh, that time. And so this is a great glimpse for us of the Jewish people in exile. Uh, Thirdly, it's one of only two books in the entire Bible whose title carries the name of a woman, which is remarkable if you think about when these books were written. In these completely male-dominated society, women had really no status, uh, had no authority, anything. And this is one of two books that carry the name of a woman, that have the woman as the centerpiece of their story. In this male-dominated society, a woman becomes this vehicle for social justice, becomes the hero of her nation. It's remarkable. Fourthly, and relevant for us today, um, this is a a good place to stir up for those of us who are are Christians um, what it's like for a religious minority to live in a nation, in a government system that basically opposes everything that you believe in. And, and, And maybe that resonates with you. We love our city We love this place, but let's just face it, there are things that we are trying to walk out, uh, ways we're trying to follow Christ that are just in direct opposition to the culture around us. And how do we do that? Do we hide? Do we just pretend we're going to live in this little bubble of people and pretend like no one else exists? That doesn't seem to be the answer. Are we going to fight everyone? (laughs) Are we going to picket and like oppose everyone? 
I don't think that's the answer. Uh, so this should stir up for us. This, this has happened before. We're not in a new situation here. Uh, Esther and her family and her people were living in this kind of hostile environment as a religious minority. And that's, it's, it's good for that to stir up in us. And finally, the fifth um, reason I love this book, maybe most importantly, is that Esther is a book that tells the story of God at work in people. Crazy revelation, I know. God at work in people. Ordinary, dysfunctional, sinful, disobedient, messy people. God at work. And he does incredible things. They're living through crazy and unpredictable circumstances. And they don't know where God is and what he's doing in the midst of it. And that should be something that we resonate with for sure. Now, it doesn't come without its challenges, though. God is never mentioned or referenced in the entire book of Esther, which is weird because this is the Bible. Never mentioned. There's not a, a prophet who gives a word of like, hey, this is what God thinks about what's going on. Nope. Uh, there is not uh, anything from the author or narrator to tell us what God's doing or where he's at, what he thinks. There's not a miracle in this book. There's not even a prayer. No one even prays a prayer in this book. And that's weird. So that's a challenge. Uh, the main characters, secondly, the main characters, Esther and her uh, guardian cousin, Mordecai, uh, they seem to have no reverence or obedience toward God's laws, the way he set his people up to operate. They compromise uh, in every way possible in their circumstances. So we're not looking at like models of how to live the, the Christian life here. Like we don't get that. We get people surviving in, a, in this crazy times. Uh, and lastly, through the twists and turns of this story, we never get a sense for what God's doing or how this is going to play out until the very end. So with that, are you guys ready to dive in? Okay. Well, we're going to dive in anyway, whether you're ready or not. Um, so I don't want to assume that everyone's read this story. So for this week, uh, we are actually going to uh, get a little summary overview of the book of Esther uh, by watching a video from our good friends at the Bible Project. So check this out. The book of Esther. It's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. The main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in this story. And then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. Now, this is a curious book in the Bible, mainly for the fact that God is never even mentioned, not once, which might strike you as kind of odd. I mean, isn't the Bible about God? But this is a brilliant technique by the author, who's anonymous, by the way. It's an invitation to read this story looking for God's activity, and there are signs of it everywhere. The story is full of very odd, quote, coincidences and ironic reversals, and it all forces you to see God's purpose at work, but behind the scenes. Let's just dive into the story. 
The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquet feasts that last a total of 187 days, and it's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. On the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. She refuses, and so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now, right here from the beginning, God's not mentioned anywhere, but this all seems providentially ordered. What is it that God's up to? You have to keep reading. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember for Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice— a die is called Pur in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther is going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. So in a key statement, Mordecai, he's confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her amazing words, if I perish... I perish. Now, in what unfolds, we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet, and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the following day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai. But all of a sudden, the story pivots. It just so happens that night, the king, he can't sleep. And he has the royal chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading. And he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution. And the king in that moment orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Now this moment in the story, it's a pivot 
it for the whole book. It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. Watch how this works. The day after is Esther's second banquet. So the king and Haman arrive, and Esther informs the king that, first of all, she's Jewish, and second, that Haman has enacted a decree to murder her and to murder Mordecai, who saved his life, and to murder all of the Jews. Now, the king's had a lot to drink, so when he hears this news, he goes into yet one more drunken rage, and he orders that Haman be impaled on the very stake he made for Mordecai. It's ironic and a grisly way for Haman to go. Haman's execution, however, doesn't solve the problem of the decree to kill all of the Jews. So the focus now turns to Esther and Mordecai as they make a plan to reverse the decree. They discover that the king can't revoke a decree that he's already made. So instead, the king commissions Mordecai to issue a counter-decree. On the appointed day that all of the Jews were supposed to be killed, the 13th of Adar, now the Jews are ordered to defend themselves and to destroy any who plotted to kill them. Then Mordecai, Esther, and Jews everywhere hold banquets and feasts to celebrate this new decree, and Mordecai is elevated to a seat beside the king. Eventually, the decreed day comes, and the Jews triumph over their enemies. First, they destroy Haman's family, and then any other Persian officials who had joined in Haman's plot. And then on a second day, they get permission to destroy any who plotted against them throughout the entire kingdom. This results in joy and celebration as the Jews are rescued from annihilation. The story then tells about how Esther and Mordecai established by decree this annual two-day feast of Purim to commemorate their deliverance from destruction. And the name of the feast comes from Haman's dice. Remember, poor Im. The book concludes with a short epilogue as Mordecai is elevated to second in command in the kingdom, and we are told now of his royal greatness and splendor as the Jews thrive in exile. Now, step back. Notice how this whole story has been designed. The story was full of moments of ironic reversal, but we can now see the whole story is structured as an ironic reversal, right down to the details. So the king's splendor and feasts and decrees are mirrored by Mordecai's splendor and feasts and decrees at the end. Esther and Mordecai, they first saved the king, but now in the end, they save all of the Jews. Then you have Haman's elevation and edicts and banquet that gets reversed by Mordecai's elevation and edict and banquet. And then at the center, you have Esther and Mordecai's planning scenes, and then Esther's two banquets that act as a frame around the greatest moment of reversal in the whole story, Haman's humiliation and Mordecai's exaltation beautiful. Another fascinating feature of this book is the moral ambiguity of the characters. There's a lot of drinking and anger and sex and murder, of which Mordecai and Esther are a part, not to mention their violation of many commands in the Torah, like marrying Gentiles or eating impure foods. And so the story is not putting Mordecai and Esther forward as moral example, as if it endorses all of their behavior, but they are put forward as models of trust and hope when things get really bad. And so the book of Esther comes back to that question with which we begin, why God is not mentioned. The message of this book seems to be that when God seems absent, when his people are in exile, when they're unfaithful to the Torah, does this mean that God is done with Israel? Has God abandoned his promises? And the book of Esther says, no. It invites us to see that God can and does work in the real mess and moral ambiguity of human history, and he uses the faithfulness of even morally compromised people to accomplish his purposes. 
And so the book of Esther asks us to be willing to trust God's providence even when we can't see it working and to hope that no matter how bad things get, God is committed to redeeming his world. And that's what the book of Esther is all about. Man, aren't those good, those videos? So good. Uh, If you guys haven't been tracking with us, we... um, are doing this year of biblical literacy, and they, it's, there's a video like this for every book of the Bible that we've read so far, and that'll continue through the end of the year. Um, they're awesome, super informative and helpful. So, um, so that's our summary. That kind of brings everyone, gives you a picture of the book of Esther. And now today, what I'd like to do is just look at these opening scenes of the book. What is the author trying to set in the stage of this story? Who are these people and, uh, and what's going on? So would you guys open to um, Esther chapter one with me? And I'm going to read these opening scenes. It's a little bit of a mashup. So just you can just listen and follow uh, along if you like, or you can try to read, but I'll be jumping uh, a little bit. But here's what I want. I want you to imagine you're in Mr. Reagan's sixth grade class. You guys have been so good today, been so obedient. You're going to get a little story time right now. Okay, all right? So enjoy it. Savor it. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. And at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Midia, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of his palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when, the king, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, these guys, uh, to bring him before Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs had taken to her. Then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she did not come. This very day, the Persian and Midian women of nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond all to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Some insecure men here. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Midia, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position 
to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, and so the king did as Memekin proposed. He sent dispatches to all the parts of his kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. Later, when the the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let let a search be made for a beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem of the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. Surprisingly, this advice appealed to the king, and he followed. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew in the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai, Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, whom he charged, uh, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head, made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces, and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on the gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. Now there are three main Movements. If we think of this as a as a play, 
right, that we're, we're watching. There are three scenes. This is act one, scene one, two, and three that happened in the opening of uh, this story. And let's unpack what's happening. Let's, let's understand who these people are and what's going on. Uh, in the first scene in act one, Xerxes displays his wealth and his power to influence and make friends and allies. So what's going on here? What's the context? Um, there are a few things that the author of Esther assumes that you already know about King Xerxes and his kingdom. The first is that King Xerxes is about to go to war with Greece. He's about to go to war with Greece. He is trying to accomplish something his father, King Darius, didn't accomplish, to expand the empire, to take over Greece, and kind of cement his legacy. Fun fact, if you saw the movie 300, this is it. This is King Xerxes who goes into trying to get into Greece and has to go through the gates of fire, right? So we are Sparta. Like that's, that's this. That's what's happening here. Um, and so this is not just a party for 180 days. This is a war council. Uh, this is uh, making friends and influencing people, okay, uh, that Xerxes is doing. He's trying to build up his team and get support. For this great work. And here's how these councils would go. Um, Commentator uh, Karen Jobes describes it like this. That um, in this day, people thought that drinking would get you closer to the divine. Right? Maybe for some people that's true. I don't know. Drinking would get you closer to the divine. And so the way they would structure these meetings is that decisions that were made in a drunken council had to wait 24 hours when everyone was sober to be approved. That makes sense, right? Here's the thing, though. It worked in the reverse as well. So if you had a sober council, you had to wait 24 hours till everyone was drunk to make sure that everyone approved. Think of like sophomore year of college. Like, did we? Is that what we decided we were doing? Is that like, did we say that? That's essentially what's happening for six months this war council, and they're just drinking and drinking and making decisions and plotting their strategy against Greece and making promises. And all of this, all of this, the author is setting up for us. Xerxes is trying to display who he is by wealth, extravagance, this this party that goes on forever, his hospitality and liberality. It talks about that a lot. Um, that he is so wealthy, he can just pour wine for six months straight in goblets made of gold. Everyone's goblet looks different. Um, just this ex- extreme wealth, okay? That's what the author is, is putting forth. This is who Xerxes says he is. But here's a problem. There's a twist. Xerxes hits a snag toward the end of his partying days with his war council. He asks Vashti to come. Come to our frat party, And just display how pretty you are so we can all look at you. And Vashti says no, which is a remarkable thing for a woman to do in this this day and age, in this framework. This could mean three things for Vashti. Best case scenario, she gets forgotten. King Xerxes just never talks to her again. Best case scenario. Very possibly, she loses her crown, which ends up happening. But also, very possibly, this is a death sentence for Vashti. To say no to the king, King Xerxes, in front of all his boys? Death sentence. Okay, Terrible things are going to happen. She, this is an incredibly strong thing for, for Vashti to do. However, 
the point that the author is trying to make is not um, the feminist power of Vashti in this moment, although it is a great moment for her, courageous moment. That's not the point the author is trying to make. Because what happens is as soon as Vashti says no to King Xerxes, what does he do? He calls a council meeting. Like my advisor, the men who know them, the wisest men in my council, my wife said no. What do I do? And they have to have this meeting and come up with a ridiculous decree, put something into law that every woman will respect her husband. And what, it's supposed to be funny. There's humor in the Bible. This is supposed to be funny. We're supposed to laugh at this because here's this man who's claiming to be great and powerful, and he can't have a conversation with his wife. He can't even, like, run his own household. And it's meant to show you what a fool Xerxes is. He's a drunken fool. He doesn't know what he's doing. And that's supposed to bubble up through the story. It's supposed to make us laugh and also make us think. That's the second scene when Vashti says no. He goes into this, I don't know what to do. She said, no, I don't know what to do. What, what do you do with people who say no? And they have this, this council meeting. And then final scene in Act 1, we're introduced to Esther. And here's what you need to understand about Esther. She is as low as you can possibly get on the power totem pole. She's a woman. She has no authority. She has nothing, no power. She's an orphan. She has no family credentials. She's poor. How do we know this? She doesn't have a husband lined up. She's not been given to anyone. She's alone, and she's poor. There's not a a lower person that we could find in this day and age. And yet, God is doing something with this, this woman. And this is a theme throughout all of scripture where God takes the least likely of us and does something incredible, does remarkable things to move his story forward. So that's what's happening in these, that's kind of unpacking the opening scenes. Three takeaways for us to understand, to kind of, kind of dig in and like what, what is there for us in this? The first God's silence does not mean he is absent. The Jews here are in great danger, the Jewish people. They're living in a hostile nation. And we've been conditioned, as we read through Scripture, that every time the Jews were in trouble, God did something extraordinary, right? There's fire that comes down from heaven. Seas are split open. Plagues fall on their enemies. God does radical, amazing things when his people are in trouble. But here he seems completely absent and silent. But his silence is not absence. There are a thousand little things that happen along this storyline that we would say are coincidences. Xerxes gets drunk. Vashti says no for no apparent reason. We're not told why. The king's council way overreacts to Vashti's response. Mordecai is in the right place at the right time when he hears about the assassination attempt. Esther wins the favor of this guy, Haggai. Who's he? Why does that matter? 
and over and over and over. Each step seems insignificant, but it's vital to this, uh, this master plan that God is doing. So I want to ask you, how did you get here? How did you get here? How did I get here? I got here by going to a taco shop on a Monday. That's how I became a pastor. I went to a taco shop on a Monday. I was working in a, a business job, and uh, we were just getting ready to have Gracie, our first daughter, and I decided to go to Bobby's Tacos on a Monday. And at that time, at lunch at Bobby's Tacos on that Monday, my old football coach happened to be there. Now, we're th- hundreds of miles from where I grew up, right? I hadn't seen him for 10 years. There's no, look, he was at this taco shop. We exchanged numbers. We started talking, keeping in touch and things. Three or five months later, he calls me. He says, Dave, I took this job as a principal at a Christian school. And I've got this position. And for some reason, I just feel like I'm supposed to ask you, would you be interested? And I said, well, what does it pay? And he told me. And I said, no human can live off that amount of money. That's impossible, much less, a, much less a family. No way. But I said, we'd pray about it, and we prayed about it. And, and there was a pivot in Noel and my and our family's life story. We, all of a sudden, we were in ministry. We were doing ministry things. And I said, this is my, my uh, offering to the Lord. I'll do this. Uh, I'm not going into church ministry. I don't want to be a pastor. No, thank you. Not interested. Guys, here I am. It's been almost five years with a, a hundred thousand different little choices along the way. I'm a pastor in San Francisco at this church. This is crazy. Never would have written this story. Your story's not any different, you guys. I don't know where you are, what decisions you've made. There are little things that you are deciding every day, and the Lord has a plan for your life and for my life and his bigger story. He's doing things. He's doing things that we can't see. His silence is not his absence, Okay? I still think we need to pray and we need to seek the Lord and read his word. And yes, he speaks to us in prayer. We should seek that out, listening to the Lord, uh, all of those things. Gives prophetic words, I believe all of that. But there are times and seasons where it's just silence. That doesn't mean he's absent, okay? Uh, Second takeaway, appearances can be deceitful. Appearances can be deceitful. Xerxes has all the looks of a great king and he's proved to be a fool, Esther seems to be completely insignificant, and she proves to be a courageous leader. Appearances can be deceitful. Here's here's the irony. Um, In this story, men are judged by their wealth and their power, and women are judged by their sexual appeal and overall beauty. And gosh, can we just say how far we've come since 500 B.C.? What a, what a mature and cultured people we are that we aren't like that anymore. Guys, appearances can be deceitful. In this day and age where all of us are putting out on social media the very best of who we are and what we want people to believe we are, uh, on all the dating apps that are just mind-boggling um, of, of people trying to make an impression of who they are, uh, you guys, appearances can be deceitful. Look for substance, please. Look for substance. Talk 
to other humans for more than two minutes, right? Get to know people, walk with people in life, all right? And you will find out if that appearance is a reality or not, okay? Appearances can be easily deceiving. And finally, and this is probably the hardest one uh, of them all, there's a question that should rise up as we we read through all of this. Um, Are you, am I, a concubine to our culture? Are you a concubine to our culture? See, Esther gave up all of her identity as a Jewess, underwent massive preparations physically and treatments, all to win the favor of a foolish king. Now, did she have a choice? Not really, but we do. We do. And so I just have to ask you, what kind of treatments and things are you putting yourself through to try to win this culture's approval in your office, in your neighborhood, in your, your social groups? What is it? Because there is a contrasting difference. We have a story of, of a man named Daniel who was also in exile in the Bible. And Daniel shows up. Go to the book of Daniel and read it. He shows up in Babylon and he says, hey, I'm a Jew. This is how we do things. This is what I eat. This is how I operate. You don't like it? Burn me. He's like a New Yorker in exile. She's like, I don't care. Now, Esther's in a totally different position. She's a woman. She doesn't have any of those like, privileges. Daniel was an elevated man. He was an educated man. He had different situation. But he, he made this stand of like, I'm not going to be what that culture is. I'm going to change the culture around me. And so this question should come up for us. Are we, have we become a concubine to the culture around us? And, and I have to say this. My time is up, but I can't go without addressing this because this has been the heaviest thing on my heart for, uh, as I prepared this, this sermon. Noel and I, my wife and I, we know many of you. And we love you guys. And, and we, we've walked through life with you. And there are so many great young men and young women in this church family. And we have seen the dating culture of this church. And it's terrifying. I don't mean that as a joke. Like, it, it is heartbreaking to watch what you guys are doing to one another. Uh, to watch what you're walking through. It's heartbreaking. And I know how this works. I know that you guys have a list. You have a list of 10 people that you would possibly date at this church. You have your list. And eight or so of those people don't have the credentials or the resume or the sex appeal or or the looks or whatever. And so you cross those people off. And you just pray to God that those top two One would say yes to you, and then two would have some kind of character. Hopefully they have some kind of character. Or have spiritual maturity. Please define that for me. That they'd be spiritually mature people. And guys, I just want to tell you, you have become a concubine to your culture in the way you're treating each other. Swiping right and swiping left is dehumanizing. It is. Is not the, meant we're, the way we're meant to interact with one another. So listen to me. There's more. 
There's so much more for you. Okay, that was my dad talk. I'm sorry. I love you guys. I love you guys. So I know I came hard there, so I want to leave you with a word of encouragement. Um, Are we guilty? Are we uh, concubines in this system, all of us, married, unmarried, whatever, preparing ourselves, selling our souls for one night with the king? Are we guilty of it? Yes, every single one of us. In some way, shape, or form, every single one of us are guilty of that. We are like Esther. We are like Esther. And here's the thing. At the start of the story, Esther's a total disaster. She's compromised in every possible way. She's become a prostitute for the king who gets elevated by chance to queen. All of us can relate in some way, shape, or form to that. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the story. By the end, Esther is a brave heart. (laughs) Esther is a hero. Esther is courageous. And she takes the broken, mangled pieces of her life being an orphan and a woman and put through all of these different things by her choice or not, she takes what's there and she does amazing things for God's people and his story. So I don't know where your story started. I don't know where your story is today, but the story's not over. There's so much more that God's gonna do in you, through you, around you, that you may not even see, you may not even hear a whisper of, Or you may get beautiful revelations. I don't know. But God is still at work. God works with her. He's patient with her. He does something great with her. So no matter what a mess you may be in, if you're here today, God's not done with your story. Because he's not done with his story. He's at work. And this is God's grace given to all of us. Let's pray. God, we um, come before you humbly. I pray we would be humble. And just admit, God, that we have compromised so, so many places. That there are areas of our lives that we have made a total mess. And the beauty of of your story, Lord, is you say um, you love us. You have not rejected us. You don't stand in condemnation over us. It says actually the reverse, Lord, that you come to the door of our hearts and you knock. and Just ask to be let in, to know us, to be known by you. So I pray that over my brothers and sisters tonight, Lord, whatever their circumstances might be, God, that lie that they'll never be loved or lovable, um, that, that lie that they've messed it up too bad, they're too far gone, would you just silence that in Jesus' name right now? And would you remind us, Lord, of your promise, God, that you are a faithful husband, And you see us as your bride, and you will not stop. You will continue pursuing and loving and forgiving 
and reconciling with us. You'll never stop. So may tonight be a reconciliation night with you, Jesus, where we lay at your feet in repentance the places we've compromised and made a mess of our lives, and we leave it there. Leave it at your feet, Jesus. And be able to receive your grace and your love abundant upon us. Would you do that tonight? In Jesus' name, amen.